Stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. I truly believe that thoughts are the greatest vehicle to change. We do not care whether the cat is black or white, as long as it can catch mice. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Victory in spite of old terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. To those waiting with bated breath for that favorite media catchphrase, the U-turn, I have only one thing to say. You turn if you want to. The ladies not for turning. I'm of the opinion that my life belongs to the whole community. And as long as I live, it is my privilege to do for it whatever I can. Is a quote from the Irish dramatist, critic and Nobel laureate, George Bernard Shaw, whose influence on Western theatre and culture continues to live on. I thought this was a fitting quote for our guest today, a leader of an organisation that helps shape communities through commitment to creating places for good and inspiring experiences. Our guest is Anthony Boyd, Chief Executive Officer of Fraser's Property Australia, one of Australia's leading diversified property groups, part of the Singapore-listed Fraser's Property Group. Anthony initially joined Fraser's Property Australia in 2005 and progressed through senior leadership roles and was Chief Financial Officer prior to his appointment as CEO. He also represents Fraser's Property on the Property Council of Australia's Corporate Leaders Group and the Champions of Change Coalition. Hello and welcome to another episode of No Limitations, a show where we speak to elite world-class performing men and women and unlock the secrets and influences that have shaped their destinies and that you could apply to your own life. For our first-time listeners from all over the world, please don't forget to follow on your preferred podcast platform and share with your friends and colleagues. And for our listeners in Italy, Canada, and Singapore, a big hello. I am your host, Greg Robinson, Managing Partner of Blender Partners, Executive Search and Board Advisory. In today's episode, we are treated to some fascinating stories from Anthony's career. From a young man playing rugby in Hong Kong, to now at the helm of a leading property group with a rich heritage going back to almost 100 years. And moving forward, setting the standard for outcomes for innovation, the community and sustainability. He shares with us insight into high performance and leadership, the human connection, inspiring passion in others, and the mindset to achieve. So sit back and enjoy. Best effort, right attitude. Anthony, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Greg. Nice to be here. Anthony, what's your one golden rule for living a high-performance life? And when opportunity comes in many disguises, how do you actually seize it? Yeah, I think the the high-performance life thing, look, my secret would be you need to spend as much of your time as possible doing things you're passionate about. Uh, It doesn't have to be just the one thing. It can't just be work or whatever it might be. But whatever that is, I just don't think you're ever going to be at your best unless you're emotionally invested. In terms of the opportunity thing, I think this is all, all comes down to your own preparedness to be ready for an opportunity. For me, it's it's sort of two things, and I, and I use this phrase often, but it's 
it's having the, the effectively making sure that you've got the right attitude and your best effort. So it's all about attitude and effort. If, you, if you've got that right setting and, and that right mindset, um, you'll be able to take advantage of opportunity. So you reckon the door's always knocking? Always. Always. If you're prepared to look, um, whether that's in career or life or, or whatever it is, but there's always opportunity there. I think you just have to present yourself with the right attitude and keep an open mind about things. Well, on that theme, what would you say was the best advice you've received during your career? It's, it's quite simple, to be honest. Don't worry. Don't spend time and energy worrying about things you don't control. Focus on the things you can control. And it goes back to that point before about opportunity. The two things you can always control are your attitude and your effort. And so the other bit of advice on that, I guess, is it's got a bit of a positive slant to it, but there's always light behind the clouds. You know, keep that positive attitude. Things, if they're even if they're a bit tough, it'll pass. Um, and always, always sort of look for look for that positive opportunity. So does the pressure get to you? Not so much. Uh, I mean, there is there are times where I worry about things, but I've never really been consumed by stress. Um, I don't often lose sleep at night worrying about things. I think I just think about, again, what are those things that I can actually control? Um, and when it really boils down and you can really streamline that, uh, it, you realize that there are some things you can control. You make your best uh, efforts at those sorts of things, and then the rest of the stuff will take care of itself. We'll come to it fairly soon, but I'm sure I read somewhere that you sort of, I think you've outlined you don't take yourself too seriously. Is that true? That's yeah, very true. As a leader, that's the way it's- Yeah, I, I, don't think, I, I don't think I've changed at all as a person. I think I've been given some of these roles and some of these opportunities to lead people and teams, and maybe those teams have got bigger over time, but I don't see myself any differently. So part of that, I think, is just having that that perspective, and, and I guess my own perspective is I can't take myself too seriously because I also understand how much I rely on on good people around me. It's not always about me. In fact, it's probably not about me at all, really. It's it's more about the teams and and what we're trying to achieve, but no, I don't take myself too seriously on that. So what was the uh, beginnings of Anthony Boyd? Uh, grew up. In Sydney, born and born and raised in in Sydney, awesome childhood, great family, one of four boys. Oh, yeah. um, so pretty competitive background then. Very competitive background. <laughs> competitive at dinner time. Competitive in the backyard, uh, playing sport. It was always about sport. Yep. You know, we're in an age where a lot of people were in my generation where you didn't have digital entertainment. Yep. Video games yep. would never appeared in our house. It was always outside. It was activity. It was playing. And so, you know, all year round, we'd be playing sport in the backyard or in the local neighborhood. We, we just, we moved around a lot, you know, we, we were around and, and often playing at all hours of the day, um, you know, out in the neighborhood and, and that was awesome. And, and I guess that was my introduction to sport really as well, you know, having that, having that exposure to different people in the neighborhood, different kids, age groups, all that sort of stuff. It was just a great way to, to explore where you were, you know, where you fit in and, and that sort of ability to, to connect with different people and. Obviously, when you're playing sport, then as a kid, there's a lot of parallels that you you draw between that and and your future life and your career as well. One of four, did you say? Yeah, four okay. boys. Where do you come into that in that order? I'm number two. Number two, but okay. it's pretty tight. Uh, <laughs> my mum mum had uh, had my older brother at I think 22, um, and she had four boys under whatever it was six or seven by the time she was kind of late 20. So it's probably a different era back then, and and she was awesome. You know, just seeing how difficult it is for yeah. for mums, having gone through that myself with Eb and, and the girls. Now it's uh, it's amazing to think, you know, what people or parents are able to do in that regard. What was mum and dad doing for their roles in those days? Yeah, dad uh, dad worked for a long time with the Sydney Water Board. He was a chemical technician. He, he had a long career with government, and it's quite funny looking back on it now because he his ambition was around his family. 
and I've had that conversation with him since, not really understanding it at the time. Obviously, I was completely blind to it at the time. Yeah. But having had that conversation with him, his priority was about making sure he was home to take us to football practice or, you know, be around, have dinner at home. Um, and so he, actually. Yeah, it, it, it's amazing mm. because he gave up opportunities for promotion to make sure that he wasn't compromising the idea of either having to work on weekends and these sorts of things. So we didn't have a lot of money, really. I mean, it, it, we were very comfortable, yep. but it wasn't as if we were going to Disneyland for our annual holidays. We, you know, we, we they, they budgeted and, yep. and they scrapped up through. To the, and up to the Gold Coast, if you're lucky. Gold Coast, <laughs> South Coast, go down and see grandma and grandpa at the South Coast. That, that was what it was. It was in the car. And yep. and I think that just reflects them prioritizing things. And, and obviously we never went hungry and, and I'm sure feeding Four teenage boys wasn't easy for for mum to go to the grocery store and those sort of things, but uh, they did it, and we we had a ball. We had a ball. We're really close still. Uh, it was a, it was a great family childhood. Did they actually put a lot of waiting on education? They did. They wanted us to take it seriously, but they never really put pressure on us. You know, they they really let us run our own race. We're all a bit different in that regard. Yep. We all did okay, but it, but it was never that you sit down, this is what you have to do, and and then you're going to go to university and you're going to do this. It, yep. it was never really about that. It was more about uh, I think, to be honest, being happy, yep. find your passion. We're all very different in terms of where we've ended up in different careers. So, um, no, it was just more about being being good people. Oh, you're an accountant by background. Was, was that your passion, was it? No, I wouldn't <laughs> say it was my passion. Um, yeah, look, it was something that I, I looked at at school. Yep. I always had a had a had an interest in in the world of business. Yep. Um, and I actually, during my last year of school, saw that. It was Price Waterhouse Coopers or yep. Price Waterhouse at the time. Nice, yep. Big eight. The big eight. Yep. And they offered these cadetship programs. And so one of my teachers at school actually said, look, maybe this is something you might want to consider. And so I, I was offered an undergraduate cadetship with with Price Waterhouse and it was awesome. So I, I, I'd worked for six months for Price Waterhouse before I turned 18. Straight out of school, I did uni over that four-year block, yep. two years part-time, two years full-time. So I had work experience. Yep. And then coming out the other side of that, I was I was quite young when I became qualified. Mm. So suddenly I was a manager in Price Waterhouse at 23, 24 years old and had this great exposure to not only lots of different businesses and different industries that you get through those those sort of professional services firms, but an opportunity to lead teams and, and to build teams. And that was that was everything for me. So I think it was more about you know, I knew from a young age I, I I wouldn't probably work for myself. I always loved the idea of you know how does human behaviour work, how a team is formed, how do people work together. That that was always a big thing for me. So I knew I'd always be in in sort of a larger organisation. I just uh, you know I, I probably stumbled my way a little bit into accounting. Did you lead teams as a young guy playing sport? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, I was. I was yeah, captain of a few football teams and cricket teams and those sort of things. I think it was something that... So what do you reckon they went to? Because the old days you used to get chosen as a captain because you're the best player, which was the worst thing the coach used to do, right? Yeah. Or were you actually chosen because you think you're actually a pretty good leader? It's a good question. I'm not sure. I haven't really thought back on it so much. Maybe there were leadership qualities that you didn't see in yourself, but you, you, you naturally maybe carried out. Yeah. Uh, it might have been maybe talking or, or leading by example. I'm not, I'm not sure exactly. Um, Did you enjoy it? Loved it. Yeah, so, so that was one so that's thing. interesting, isn't it? Yeah, you're right. You're right. So looking back on it, I actually did enjoy being captain of teams. Yep. Um, and, and I guess, you know, in a lot of ways when you're in a, in a school team or a, or a junior team, yep. there is that probably natural hierarchy of leadership that forms even without having someone with a captain next to their name. Correct. You know, and, that, and that's true in life and sport yep. and, and all those things anyway. But now you ask me, yeah, I did really enjoy it. 
So PricewaterhouseCoopers, you know, it's a pretty disciplined type of career as well. Uh, you said you inherited or you started acquiring a team as you were building your career. Where did you stand out differently to the others or the predecessors? Yeah, this is a this is a or is it or is it formulaic? It's it's actually not. Well, I don't know if it is now. It definitely wasn't back then. I think, and it seems it seems silly maybe saying it this way, but I think because I was I was playing rugby, yep. and I think in a lot of ways the senior partners in the firm saw that there was a balance, there was perspective, there was maybe a life outside of work mm-hmm. that was an advantage. And in a lot of ways, I used to have some partners say to me, "Mate, if you've got to go to training, you, you go. You know, don't worry about staying here for the full day if you've got to get to training early and those sort of things." Wow. So I think they probably saw the benefit of perspective and balance. I, I always think that. Uh, if people are if people are busy and they've got this this ability to to sort of follow a passion, you become more efficient at everything you're doing. So there was always that sense of, you know, I can balance all this stuff. I can still perform at a level that's expected of me, and I was still doing really well at work. But but I just wasn't throwing everything I possibly had into work, and I think that might have helped. Ultimately, you decided to move on. Where did you go to? So I uh, I actually went up to Hong Kong to play a rugby tournament in the early 2000s, 2001. And I can't, I love the, the city yep. um, and, and came home after the, after the tournament up there and uh, was actually offered a, or a potential position for one of the rugby clubs up there. So I'd been thinking for a long time. I did actually think to myself, I couldn't see myself staying at Pricewaterhouse for the rest of my life. Yep. I did want a, a change to some degree. So this was an opportunity to, to do a big change, not just a change in employer uh, and, and business that I was working for, but a change in city, a change in, in life. Yeah. So I, I went up to Hong Kong. It took a bit of a gamble, to be honest. It, it wasn't like I didn't have the job at the time. I oh, went really? up. No, I really, I actually went up. I had the, had the football, but then, then went up and, uh, and actually looked for opportunities up there. And this great opportunity came with the Swire Group, who yep. own Cathay Pacific. Yep. And I worked in sort of their, they, they had as a general management team that they used to be really proactive moving around and giving opportunities to, to different people. And I had this awesome opportunity then to work for, for Cathay Pacific, where I was for, for nearly four years. Just on that, I've, I've worked with Swire in the past. Were you impressed by them? Really impressed. Yeah. A lot of people don't know a lot about them. You want to maybe give us a bit of flavor of that? Their their whole story. So this is, you know, well over 150 years old and a really established business in the UK who had that real pioneering innovation spirit. So they, they ventured out, they had shipping companies, they had all of these agricultural companies, and then they moved into manufacturing and they moved into property and they moved into to refrigeration and all of these other, you Shop, know, retail. Centers, yep. yep. And they had this, I think this great, almost like this adventurous spirit about them. Yeah. Pioneers, uh, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm. Like a lot of those really good British companies that then went out to the far-flung, yep. you know, fetches of the world and- so Asia was a huge market yeah, for the them. Far East, yeah. the Far East, and and obviously their history there is very strong. And they're a very well respected company. For me, it was it was this amazing opportunity because it wasn't only about then an ability to maybe think of myself developing a bit further around teams and senior leadership and some of these sort of skills. There was also the idea of well, what are those cultural differences? How do you form high performance teams in different cultures uh, when you don't have the same backgrounds, diversity, all of those things? And then, for a kid that had spent most of his time in Sydney, suddenly I was travelling the world, working for an airline. I I had a great opportunity to spend time in a whole bunch of different markets. Suddenly, I was working with teams in the US, in Europe, all throughout Asia. And that ability to, to, I guess, see the world and, and see see a business from from a different perspective, it was it was awesome. 
make much money in the airline sector? It's pretty tight, isn't it? Airlines are amazing businesses. The whole airline industry is amazing. It's it, it was a great time for me. So what years were they? It was 2001 to 2005. Okay, so good years. Great years, yep. great years, but there was a hiccup, and, I, and I'll talk about that in a sec. But airlines are amazing businesses when you've got aircraft that are full and they're in the sky. In early 2003, uh, SARS. Yeah. Right? So, yeah. so Smack bang, you're sitting there right in it. Right in it. And for an airline that is, is every flight is either going into or coming out of Hong Kong, yeah. and Hong Kong was the epicenter of the SARS That's epidemic, right. it was a big thing. And so they had by far their worst six months ever. They had a situation where at the time there were probably 80 aircraft in the fleet. And within, I think, the course of about four to six weeks, about 75 of those were parked. Is that, so, right? Is that right? Yep. So they basically, they put all the captains on the planes, flew them. A lot of them were in Australia, actually, because that was some of the cheapest places you could, you know, aircraft cost money to leave on the ground. Yeah. And they found a lot of cheaper sort of parking spaces in, in Australia. So they flew their fleet down. Yep. At one stage, I think we only had one aircraft in operation. That was one daily flight to Taipei and back. So, so there was that part. The second part was they they were still bleeding cash. Yes. So we had our CFO at the time with one of those calendars on the wall that literally you rip a page off and the number goes down. And <laughs> they were the days of liquidity left in the business. Is that right? And, serious? And, I'm serious. And, and it got down to around about 50. The irony of that was that previous to that, in, for a number of years, there were a lot of analysts and a lot of investors that would push Cathay and say, your balance sheet's lazy. Yeah, 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 you're, yeah. You're not pushing yourself hard enough. You've got too much liquidity. Suddenly- Which is interesting being a company which is frontier focused, but conservative in many cases as well, aren't they? Well, it turned out to be the smartest thing that they could have ever have done yeah. to, to have this liquidity buffer that then yeah. got them through SARS because yeah. this six months was horrible. So we we're ripping these pages off the calendar every day. Then you think of it from a people perspective. Yep. So suddenly you've got crew, you've got, or cabin crew and, and flight crew yep. grounded. Yep. You had a number of, of office staff that were still trying to run the business, but at one stage management came out and asked everybody to take at least four weeks of unpaid leave, yep. which I think 97, 98% of people straight away said, absolutely, we'll do it. But the irony of that was that it, I think it was around June or July, SARS just went off the front pages. It was then became not an issue at all. They got completely on top of it and all the pent up demand for travel suddenly fell into the second half of the year. Cathay had their best six months they'd ever had in that second half of 2003 and the planes filled up again. They brought them all back into service. People were flying around again and management came out. I'll never forget this. They came out at the end of the year and they said, everyone who took that leave, we really thank you for it, but we're still, we're going to pay you for it. Because obviously you put your hand up and said you can you'll take it without pay, um, but we've done well, and that was part of the reason was we were conserving cash flow, through, you know, through that time, and uh, we're going to pay you for it. So, Anthony, what were your observations? Um, bearing in mind, this is completely the unknown, major corporate leaders under pressure, and there's a culture. Does the actual culture survive? Is it getting turfed out the window? Behaviour is not in alignment with what was being expected. Great opportunity to see oh, this, all the rhetoric really match the actions. Absolutely. And and this was everything. This is where I, I learned at the time, and I've said it since, but from a business point of view, there were two things you had to focus on, people and cash flow. So it became that simple. So suddenly, you know, in that order too, people are most important because it's about nurturing, like you said, culture, culture can dissipate very quickly if people don't feel like they're being nurtured. And even if in times of trouble, that's probably when culture has to play its biggest role. And we didn't have Zoom in those days either. 
no Zoom, no Zoom. A lot of people were, were, were just went home, right, because they were taking leave. So there was constant communication. One of the things they did, actually, I'll never forget this either, they they had a number of doctors on staff for flight checks and all of those sorts of things. Yep. They sent a daily email to all staff from the doctor saying, here are all the facts around SARS. Here's all the statistical information. Here's what you shouldn't believe that's in the papers. Here's all the, the real medical facts. And I thought that was a really interesting thing to do at the time because that's that's culture by another name. We're, we're going to really nurture information flow and, and, and communications and be really clear and, and provide that clarity to all staff. Uh, and that really paid off. How'd you go? When you stand back and look yourself, you know, you're observing everybody else, but now looking back, how'd you handle it all? I think that was one of those times where I did learn to just worry about things I could control. You know, a couple of times I'd have people ringing from Australia because it was headline news <laughs> right around the world and people That's were right. going, what are you doing still there? Yeah, get out. Come home. <laughs> And at the time, it probably wasn't that level of, of risk up there. People didn't feel that way, if I'm being honest. It was more, we, we kind of knew where the risks were and you knew what to do and those sorts of things. Um, but uh, yeah, I think if you let it get away from you and you start to worry about these big things that you have no control over, you, you do start to worry about things. And, and uh, that was a big lesson for me at that stage. I was still quite young, mm. but, but it was a really good perspective to take. The level of business discussion in Hong Kong. It's mouthwatering. It's eye-opening, isn't it? Yeah. It's I, quick. You know, you've got a German, you've got a French, you've got an Italian, someone from North America, someone from the UK sitting at a table. Absolutely. And, and that just brings with it this sort of, I guess, natural expectation of high performance. It's a it's a very business-focused city. You know, people are always thinking about who's here, what are, what are things do, you know, what are the trends. It's obviously one of the biggest money markets in the world yep. um, and, and a huge commercial market. So, so yeah, I, I was fascinated by that, being able to to have colleagues, friends, business associates that had such diverse backgrounds, like you say, ethnicity and yep. age and experience. So for me at that time, it was I, I, I learned so much in those years. So what is high performance, Anthony? Yeah, look, it's, it's ambition. There's no doubt about that. It's about setting a bar that – that probably not yet achieved. Which could be just saving the airline as well, couldn't it, during that time? Correct. Correct. So so high performance is just about, and then it's alignment. So once you have a team that's aligned with not just how they're going to operate together, but what they want to achieve together, and then about setting guidelines as to how to do that. Is it as simple as that? Because if it's that simple, Anthony, why are we seeing high performance left, right, and center? Good question. I do think it's that simple, really. If you can, if you can get that clarity, mm-hmm. and and then get the right people to execute on that clarity, that that's really what it is. But I guess if you look at it from your side, you know that, that question is a good question because, you know, you see everything from from the obvious team environments, which are say sporting teams that you can see every week, and you see cultures play out yep, uh, in different ways. But you also see businesses struggle through things. That are culture related, um, and I, and I and I do put culture and high performance in that very clear bucket. I think you can have a business that's got a great strategy, but that doesn't guarantee that you're high performance if if you don't have that culture to match it. So, um, yeah, I've always I've always thought of this this triangle almost between your strategy, your culture, and your brand. And your brand's everything, obviously, that faces externally. Yeah. You can't do anything in that triangle without it affecting the other two sides. And high-performance teams sit right in the middle of that triangle. And managing that brand, that's imperative to you? It's super imperative. I think in a lot of ways, it should be driving a lot of that stuff that happens in either strategy or culture. And yeah, it's interesting to see how how my time at Fraser's, that's that's actually evolved a lot and is really changing, I guess, our our belief and our and our focus as a business 
around what's important. You're listening to No Limitations with special guest Anthony Boyd. In our next episode, I sit down with Jim Penman, entrepreneur and founder of Jim's Group. Always people are saying, lighten up. There's always this pressure. And I am just a fanatic. I will not lighten up. And in fact, as time goes by, we raise and raise and raise and raise our standards. And that is an emotional driver that I've got. Be sure to join us on our next episode. And now, back to the show. What is Fraser's and how did you uh, end up there after this successful time at, uh, in Hong Kong? Yeah, I pretty much stumbled into Fraser's, if I'm being honest. Well, you stumbled honest. into Hong Kong, so you're doing pretty yeah, well. Yeah, I stumbled everywhere, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> um, well, I, I've, I've actually never sat down and put a career plan out, right? Is, like that, I, is that serious? Yep, I've never- I've So here never, we are, high performance, but no career plan? Yeah, I just haven't seen myself as a project for high performance. Did, um, you, set out, did you set out to achieve anything? I think I just wanted to make sure that I was that that I had an ambition in terms of like achieving things, yep. but it wasn't necessarily trying to draw those in a box and say by that age I wanted that exposure or that title or that role. Those things have actually never worried me. They don't actually even worry me now. Yep. It's more about saying what can I have an influence over. Yep. What can I potentially help control? Yep. And then what's that ambition that we can set collectively and then working with great people and putting those teams around around you to achieve those things? How does that sit with dad? It's probably come from him, you know, if I'm if I'm being honest. Because again, he's he's not yeah, but at least at least that ambition was still very grounded in his personality. Yep. Um I don't think he he, he didn't he's never pretended to be anything other than who he is. And I think that's the similarity that that's, and that, that allows this, I think it's that authenticity that allows you to, to be high performance, because again, it goes back to that first question you asked me, but it's, if, if you're doing something you're passionate about, and sometimes that's a technical outcome, sometimes that, that might be property for some people, it might be aircraft for other people, it might be cars, it, it might be those physical things. But for me, I think it's about people. It's about human behavior and about giving people opportunities to to grow themselves and to to be leaders themselves um and and I'd like to think that's probably my dad's best legacy and that, and that you know one day hopefully might be my best legacy and did mum give you the incentive of adventure yeah they were they were just they were just really down to earth great people so they they always encouraged us to kind of push the boundaries yep they they didn't have expectations of it but they never held us back on anything um, and we're always so supportive and, and that's, that's something that I've been really lucky with, um, you know, really blessed with, I guess, is, is just this idea that people have been supportive of that and that's, that came from family and then, it, then it's evolved into my career as well. Okay. Well, why didn't you keep going North? Why, why didn't you go up to England or to the US? Why did you, you know, you've seen the big wide world. Probably the next that, part is to live somewhere else. Why did you come back home? Yeah. Probably those things I've been talking about. I miss my family. Yeah. Right. It's just that proximity, right? That, that connection, uh, that, that sense of belonging, that idea that you're, you're part of something. Um, and you know, they all came up to visit and we'd come home to visit, but it was that sense that for Eb and I, we'd been there for, for four years. We were thinking about starting a family mm-hmm. and yeah, we just wanted to make sure that we could do that around our, our extended family. Okay. So you make the big call and you come back to Australia. Yep. You didn't want to stay in the airline industry. Or did you? Or did you? Oh, look, I could have. Yep. I, I could have. It was a fascinating industry. And in fact, the Swire group were great, but they actually said to me at the time, look, you are probably on a trajectory that might be bigger than what we've got for you in Australia right now. Yes. We had a very open conversation yep. about it, um, which was great. Yep. And then and then I, I had an opportunity to interview for a few different companies and it was Australand at the time. Yes. And they gave me a great role, which was really a corporate finance role to start with. But then, you know, soon after, as you know, Australand were listed in that time. 
but it's evolved very much since then. So come on, talk us through, what is this company? Yeah, so Fraser's Property Limited, uh, listed in Singapore, is a is a multinational property development and ownership business. Seventy plus cities, forty billion plus dollars in assets. It's a it's a huge company, multi asset class. So across commercial, retail, industrial, hospitality, residential, mm-hmm. with a really strong focus on end to end capability that allows you to effectively develop your own investment portfolio is predominantly what the strength of the business is. Mm-hmm. Fraser's Property Australia uh, yep. that, that I'm part of is a wholly owned subsidiary of the Singapore entity, still a very big business. We focus more on on the development of complex sort of master planned mixed use developments in the major capital cities of Australia and also developing assets that we manage long-term that become investment assets predominantly across commercial and retail, but increasingly now residential as well. So you're amongst it right now then, aren't you? Yeah, it's an amazing time, um, to be honest. And we've got some great projects as well. But yeah, what's been really great for me is this this ability to kind of push, I guess, outside the realms of of just real estate Mm -hmm. and think much more about our place in in sort of society and and our place, you know, for our customers. All right, I'm going to come to that in a second. How did you get the role as chief exec? And how do you make yourself, in your mind, be selected to be chief exec? The company has a very strong succession planning framework, and where possible, they promote from within. So so that's that's the first part. The second part was, for me personally, I've had nearly 17 years there, mm-hmm. so say 15 before I, I became CEO. Mm-hmm. and had plenty of opportunities in that role, seven sort of different roles. I spent some of that time in in Melbourne, running a business down in Melbourne and moving around different parts of the business. So So you've been blooded out of finance. Yes. Yep. Out of finance reasonably quickly. And that was- That's a smart move. Well, that was something that was a joint decision between CEO at the time, Bob Johnston and Rod, who was the the executive general manager of the the residential division at the time. Yep. And we had a very open conversation about it. And I actually said that um, I didn't see myself as a long-term finance professional. Yep. I probably didn't want to be a CFO. So so what would that mean? And sometimes that's a bit of a difficult conversation, to be fair, because they might say, well, actually, that's just- that's all you that's all you've got. Yeah. And that was- well, that's, was pre- all, that's all we've got. Well, that's all we've got. And, yeah. and I was prepared for that too. Yep. But uh, when they, I guess they showed a, a belief in me, um, gave me the opportunities. And, and so for me, it was just then about- really understanding the business from different perspectives. Yep. And so almost accumulating this knowledge and, and through both relationships and just the technical expertise across the business, being able to see the business from different areas, learn the business. And I think I might've said it before, but because I've never really, I don't think I've changed much. So yep. I think people have, have probably said, well, you can maybe have a have a go at this job. And all I've done is just bring my own skills to that job. Just stumble forward again. Stumble stumble again. <laughs> yeah. um, but again, just throw yourself into it. You what know? do you love about business? It's that ability to, to be something for a customer. Have your place oh, yeah. in That's the world. That's not a cliche, is it? No, not at all. Okay, not at all. On. Have your place in the world, right? Why, why is the world better for you existing? You know, that's a, it's a pretty existential question. Yeah, but, but if you can ask yourself that, and as a business, you can understand that, and then you start to translate your culture to reflect that, that's an awesome opportunity because, you you know, people put their trust in you. Correct. Um, yeah. pe- people, people invest themselves into a business because of, of what either that business stands for or what their leaders represent and what their leaders can potentially do for them. So, 
it's it, it, that's an awesome opportunity, but a pretty big responsibility at the same time. Yeah, but you also had the other challenge, which was, would you say, 17 years in the organization yep. before you became CEO. That means you're pretty well known. Yes. And everyone's got a view on you, right? And yes. And they've probably pigeonholed you in some form or another. Yep. And then suddenly, guess what? There's a new announcement. We've made the call. The gentleman down there in the hallway is now going to be the chief exec. How do you go about bringing everybody online? Again, I think it's a, the first thing is don't change for me. It, w- it was saying, okay, I'm, I'm going to do this, this job, but I'm not going to be anyone different. It goes back to the football days. If the selection team pick you in the side, it's not your choice, right? So all you can do is get on the field and, and play the best you can possibly play yep. and worry about the things that, you, that you're doing and what you bring to the team. It, in a lot of ways, it's the same. Mm. So a board um, is saying, we want that person to, to be the CEO. You don't pick yourself. So in a lot of ways, if people don't like that decision, that's okay. They self-select um, anyway, right? In a lot of ways, they will. Yep. Uh, or they might come around or, or, or a combination of the two. Yep. But, but really, you can't, you can't then worry about that. What you have to be able to do is, is generate that next layer of ambition and obviously generate that next layer of culture that allows people to get behind you and, and, and I guess believe in that next vision for the business. Did you want the job? Yeah, I did. Were you ready for the job? No. I don't think anyone's ever ready, but I, but I, but I, but at the same, are you serious? Th- you really weren't ready. Well, I don't I don't know if you're ever ready for the job in terms of walking in and saying I'm completely comfortable with everything I've got to do tomorrow. That's <laughs> true. Yeah, and, and and I'm not. It doesn't worry me sort of admitting that. I don't think anyone would have would have ever taken a job like the CEO. People might say, oh, okay, well, are you ready for the CEO role? Um, I think you you're probably more ready in other people's eyes than you are in your own. Because you probably bring a skill set that they want and, and they have trust in to be able to deliver on, on what, and then, then and then let you find your feet. I think from an internal point of view, you've got to find your feet. So if you haven't found your feet before you start, well, then you're probably not, you know, you, you don't think you're ready. Yeah. But in reality, there's only certain things you can do. You, you start, right? Someone gives you a box of business cards and you, and you sit at your desk and then it's the first day and, and you start. Um, and, you know, you start talking and you start thinking about things and- the beauty for me was when when I say I wasn't ready, that doesn't does, you're that, getting groomed, weren't you? Yes, and that doesn't mean well in some in some degree. So when I moved into the CFO role, yep, you know that that was part of the succession planning, and that was great. And even during that time, I had some really detailed conversations with Rod at the time, who was who was the CEO and became chairman, yep. about what my vision would be if I was ever given the role of CEO. Okay. So he's testing the waters, is he? A little bit. Mm. And, and I was probably testing them with him too. Yep. Um, in a way where I had some ideas and, and it's difficult talking to a current CEO about things that I might do differently. Yeah. But Rod is just one of those guys that was, was so nurturing in that, had already given me a number of opportunities and was so nurturing that, that we just had really organic conversations about it. So when I say I wasn't ready, I guess I just hadn't seen myself in that role and title, but, but I had thought a lot about what the business could do, um, and and potentially how we could be better as a business. Anthony, so when you when you when you get appointed as chief exec, do you go home that night and say, no, "Great news, we cracked the champagne, etc., cetera, etc.," cetera, but do you then sit quietly and say, "When I do leave one day, this is what I want to be remembered for"? Do you have that introspective bit of thinking early on because that's going to set a course, I assume, or or as you said earlier, I've just walked in, got the business cards, I sit down and I take it. You know, you're not taking it day by day. Of course, you don't. You don't operate in that yep. manner. But where is the thinking? Yeah, it's it's probably a combination of those two things because you are excited mm-hmm. about the opportunity that's ahead of you. Yeah. But 
yeah, you do also have that idea that, well, it's not going to be forever. Yep. So immediately you're starting to think, well, what are those things? Not necessarily in a selfish way around personal legacy, but about just being a custodian of, of the business. It's, it's a great business. I mean, we've been, we've been around nearly 100 years. And so obviously I don't know every CEO of the business, but I know the last three or four. And I look at their legacy as, as a custodian of this business for a period of time and they put their own fingerprints on it. And as certain as anything, you know, there'll be a day where someone else is announced as the CEO of the business. And, and to me, that's, that's just, that's, that's this great organic place to be where you can actually start to think about what are those things? Like I better get started because, you know, if we are going to achieve some of these things that I want to achieve, we've got to get on with it straight away. So Anthony, what did you set out to achieve? So there was a, there was a bit with, uh, with the customer. So I said before, we obviously had this really big focus on customer and this idea that we wanted and to- And who is the customer? Talk us through who is the customer. We've got varied customers. So yeah. so we might have a customer who buys an apartment or a house office that lives in one of our communities. Our yeah. customers are also tenants in a retail environment or a commercial environment. Mm-hmm. They could be customers of our shopping centers. So customers are, are, are varied in our business. Yep. But the way we approached it was, well, how do you think about this organically and become a business that's that's much more outwardly focused than, than probably being selfish around the design and delivery of places as we think they should be? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I said before about the, this ambition of, and this is probably a long answer, by the way, because we have been obsessed about this for the last couple of years. But when we took this view of, well, why is the world better for us existing? What, what, what do we do and what do we represent? Um, we've spent a lot of time with Simon Hammond. He's a guy, he runs a business called 50 Crates and he's really a a human behavior and social trends expert. Okay. He just happens to work with businesses. Right. So that's been really insightful. P- part of that is just about saying then who are we, right? So we're, we're multiple things to, to people. We're ambition, we're security, we're safety, we're convenience. It's not just real estate, it's lifestyle. So then you need to have almost this this fundamental sort of emotional understanding of society, mm-hmm. including some of those things that, you know, social trends and, and how will that impact us as a business? So as you know, Greg, we were talking about it earlier today, but mm. there's a few things. One, property is getting more diverse, right? So, so it's becoming, I guess, more blurred and adaptable because- Work life's getting more blurred. Yep. So so naturally neighborhoods are becoming more diverse. Family structures are changing. You know, they're very different to what they were two or three generations ago. Yes. You've got household formation changing as a result of that. There's more single person households now than ever before, and that's an increasing trend. You've got this reliance on, and this is a societal thing, we've got this reliance on or almost an obsession with technology. The oh, social no, obsession. I think it's an obsession. I mean, you, you, all you got to do is walk down a train station nowadays and see people looking at their phones, right? Yeah. So all of this stuff, and, and then you've got you've got social media, which in a lot of ways sits on top of this technology box, and people get get sucked into. Then above everything, people are busy. They're almost busy being busy. Everyone I speak to is busy. So then you sort of have to think about that from a second and think, well, despite the fact that technology and social media in particular are supposed to be about building connection. The reality is loneliness is almost an epidemic. Like loneliness is a big issue. So the way we look at it, the horse is bolted on technology. We're not putting that genie back in the bottle, right? And that's that's fine. But humans are actually hardwired to find belonging and find genuine connection and, and trust. Yep. 
There's biological and chemical responses that have been proven over multiple studies, over multiple decades, across all cultures and all different age groups, that there are both emotional and physical benefits for people when they feel belonging and, and feel like they're connected. And the question then becomes for us, how can neighborhoods and places that we create enhance people's mental or physical well-being through connection? Well, you said the word communities earlier. Is that what you're alluding to? Yeah. That, what, that, is, what is that actually? What is a community in your eyes? Well, I guess what, what we have to think about is, is, and this is what we're trying to understand better, is how do you translate that sort of knowledge into outcomes in our projects that allow people to, to I guess, fundamentally feel more connected? Like We, we actually believe that society's future in terms of having a, a successful and, and sort of happy future is is based on those fundamental promises of, of sort of human connection. Mm-hmm. So, but has that changed then? Well, I through think the history through history, I, well, we, I all, think, we all like to be connected, don't we? You all like to be patted on the back and share stuff or listen to. Absolutely, that nothing's changed in that regard. Absolutely, I, I like to think of it as if if the history of human beings is is a twenty four hour day long period. Yeah, we've probably had this much technology in our lives for the last two minutes. Yeah. What we're trying to unpack is what's this difference between this fundamental sort of human nature type thing that, that's driving connection and belonging, and how is technology and social media potentially trying to substitute for that, but actually not doing a really good job of it? So this idea of neighborhood and community, and look, COVID's been something that's that's probably shone a light on this a little bit more, yeah. but this, these trends were happening well before COVID, okay. but suddenly it becomes very local. What, how do people value and, and prioritize those local connections? For us, we then have come up with this idea that that belonging almost becomes the key to feeling proud about how you live your life. And that that changed our belief. Our belief now is that we exist to create belonging because we believe our future depends on how we live life together. That's very unusual for a property company in, in a lot of ways. And to us, we've realized very quickly that whilst the neighborhood is the and the streetscapes is, is that sort of hardscape that we that we produce in a tangible context, yes. communities, strong communities, are actually the intangible measure of that success of that neighborhood. And so this, this is this is amazing. So all we're trying to do then is to explore, well, what can we do? What are the better ways that we can create not just the places, but also the opportunities for people to make those genuine connections in our projects? Okay. So if I'm listening out there, Anthony, can you draw some pictures in my mind? What are you talking about for walking to one of your properties or walking to a shopping center? Give me some examples. So what what it will be is this idea that how are you designing and delivering places that, yes. that feel I think a lot of people will naturally affiliate with with the idea that some places feel better than others. Yep. So, so that, that there's almost like this intangible feeling piece. A lot of that's about design. A lot of that's about thinking about you know people might call it human centric design and those sorts of things. Really, that's just about saying. How can we create places where people feel as though they can make those connections when they want to, but also provide the security and and maybe the solidarity and and privacy when they need them as well? So, so some of that's about adaptability of space. The next layer, though, is about assisting with that development of that community. So, so as a brand, now we are spending as much time and attention on who's that community? Because the other thing is you've got to be really careful with this. It's very nuanced. It's not, it's not a cookie cutter approach. You can't yeah. just roll out the same thing every time. You have to think about who's going to be living in these spaces, who's shopping, who's, who's working in these communities, and how are you helping to bring them together? So are they events? Are they 
incubators for small business operators that live in the same community? Are they exercise classes? What are they that that these things that, and it's not necessarily new, but it's just really putting a focus on those things because we know the value for our brand is actually what our projects look like 20 years after we've walked away from them rather than the day we sell our last property. What sort of results are you getting? It's been really fascinating because this is something we've probably spent time changing our focus on over sort of five to six years. Yeah. So it's not it's not as if as CEO that I, I introduced some of these concepts, but I definitely introduced the idea of, say, NPS, so, yeah. so measuring customer promoter scores. So again, you look at society in terms of one of its biggest changes, people are much more likely to take a recommendation from a friend or or someone else, even even someone who they don't even know, compared to reading an ad in a magazine that the business is talking about themselves. So we know the value of advocacy. We know the value of of people that that support our brand. So the way you measure it, something like NPS has grown significantly over time. Mm-hmm. You also have a measure for us because we're not selling a high volume manufactured good. A lot of what we track is say repeat or referred business. Yes. And, and that's something that, again, just just for a property company is is really everything because that becomes brand advocacy. Yep. And that's trended up significantly over time as well um, from, from probably somewhere down below 10% to now nudging nearly 40% in some of our projects, which is monumental in terms of that change. The people you're surrounding yourself with now, has that changed much in the last five years, bearing in mind the journey that you're undertaking or the thinking that you're presenting? It actually hasn't changed at all. In fact, what I've- That's, that's an interesting comment, isn't it? Yeah. We still spend time as a business really talking to customers. And part of this, part of this, this, I guess, desire to explore and really understand belonging better and really understand what it means for people to live life together is talking to customers, talking to, to, to normal people that are out there just living and working and shopping in our environments. But the people I surround myself with really hasn't changed. I mean, it's, I still spend a lot of time with my- best mates, which are my footy mates from 20, 25 years ago, my family um, and those sort of things. But I think that's that's almost the essence of what we're trying to crack here is to not try to be overly cerebral or try to over-manufacture these outcomes through the lens of you know sophisticated property fundamentals. This, this is just about saying, what do these places feel like and how are these communities going to thrive? And, and you know, other than people, I mean, people like Simon are great. And, and it's not as if I'm not exposing myself to, to other thinking as well. So, so that is something that we definitely are doing. But I think the fundamentals of who we're surrounding ourselves with is pretty consistent. So how do you operate as a leader? Very openly, very transparently. We've got a really close team. As you mentioned before, a lot of, a lot of my team now who on an org chart report to me, but I consider peers really. Um, do you I've, really? Yeah, I do. Yeah, I do. Okay. I, I don't think... I mean, look. I think there's a, there's a natural there's a natural hierarchy when there has to be someone in the room's got to make a decision when someone has to make a decision or someone yeah. has to present something or, or whatever, and that, and that's okay. Yeah. Um, but then again, it shouldn't be too many surprises. I assume either. That's right. And, and when most of the most of the operations and most of the ambition that's happening is is actually sitting underneath you in the business somewhere, I don't really see myself above anyone in the business in, in that regard. So, from a leadership point of view, we've got a very very close team. We're always checking in with each other around that bigger picture alignment stuff, yep. um, but also just the the you know the day to day operational stuff is very organic, because I think there's not, and this is something I think we're very lucky with is in a culture, there's not a lot of ego. 
and to be honest, this is this is a historical thing. I definitely inherited it, and it's been something that's 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 been part of our culture for a long time. Not a lot of ego, not a huge reliance on on hierarchy or bureaucracy to make decisions. We value opinion from people, and and access to leaders in our business is actually very very organic. You say organic. What do you mean by that? I mean we've got no offices. I mean, leaders aren't hidden behind doors. Okay, uh, we're all sitting out in the same environment as everyone does in the business. Yep, we've got this sense that if anyone wants to speak to a leader at any time, there's no gates to get through to to actually get access to those people. And you see leaders all the time in our business just just literally walking the floor and and having conversations with people and being out on projects and and, and having this sort of authentic, organic discussion. All right, wind that memory back from as a young person. PwC and at the Swire Group, and Swire Group's very traditional, but very good leaders. Where do you at then? Do you think open plan, that that the no gates, the discussion you you suggested just there? Yep. Does that bring a different result? That that's definitely changed because especially in that professional services firm, there were the partners that had the big offices. Oh, that's that, right. That was that was where you had to get to. Correct, correct. But I also But does look, it get different outcomes or different performance levels based on what you've seen or not? I, I still think the best outcomes that were achieved in any of those organizations I've worked for yeah. came down to individual leadership styles and they were always the same as I've just explained. That they just didn't didn't I think put themselves above, even though their titles and the hierarchy might have naturally put themselves above it. There were individuals that cracked that code and didn't see themselves above that, and and I think they were the most successful, uh, at least in my experience, and at least in terms of nurturing people. You could see in a big organisation like PricewaterhouseCoopers, you could see, for instance, the partners and the senior managers that people were attracted to working with because. That that was personal leadership at its best, and that was that authentic, uh, organic approach to how do I treat people, how am I in terms of dealing with all types of different people, and and how open am I about having sort of conversations with people? Because the other thing you got to think of too, it's not it's not always just about shared ambition. Most of the time it is, and that's high performance teams and culture, but it also comes about can you help me solve a problem, and. If you're too distant from people, then they won't come to you with problems. And I think that's one difference that I've seen in my career too, is if leadership feels too distant for people, they'll live with those problems. And that's that's just slow erosion of either culture or confidence of those people. If they feel empowered enough to just walk up and say, I'm going to ask you, there's something I, I really need you to help me with. It's X. It, it could be a process. It could be a, a structural inefficiency. It could be something to do with a design outcome on a project. Yep. But I need to have this conversation with you. And if I can have that conversation and I know you're going to be listening to me and can help me, then it's going to make my life a lot easier. What's been the biggest learning so far as a CEO? I think that that the people, well, it's not necessarily a new learning. In the internal space, it's, uh, it's that people are just as important as ever. That, that, so, that, so it's that's, all about the people? That's not new. It is. Is it yeah, really? It is. And then if you look at it from an outside point of view, the biggest learning for me has just been how willing our customers and those connections outside the business are, are willing to talk about these sort of things about how society is changing and how we might be able to play a role in, in addressing some of those challenges. So are we going to get some financial results off the back of all this? That's, that's the beauty is that we, we see this through the lens of a financial landscape, right? This is the other thing. So we're not leading with that. Right, but uh, but my my firm belief, and we're seeing this in some of our results, is you lead with the right customer ambition, yes, and the financial results will follow, and that's something that we're we're definitely seeing. And you've got to be really, it, it's still property, 
right? It's still, you can still make, you can still make mistakes, right? You can still make property mistakes. You can still pay too much for a block of land. You can still, you know, have the wrong mix of whether it's residential or the wrong mix of commercial. Um, You can still make those mistakes. So you still need really great real estate property people in your business. But if everything you're doing has this really customer-centric focus, then generally these returns that are trailing with with financial returns are, are really positive as well. Does the customer actually know what they want or do you guide them or do you set a, the vision? A lot. Well, a lot of so, the- you know, Customer centricity and all this stuff is yep. used a lot. Is your job to take them, to ask them, do they actually really know? Like, it, are they it, going to unjumble some of this sometimes? Yeah. And, and that's a really good question because in, in fact, it can actually work both ways. Okay. I think the important thing is, is to understand you're part of a dialogue. That That's the important thing. So- so if you go out there and just say, we know what's best, we'll tell you exactly the types of apartments you want, we'll tell you exactly the, the mix of mixed use here, we'll tell you exactly how much commercial you need here, then then you can be fraught with danger. Equally, you can't go out there and design something by committee. You can't you can't ask a, a you know 300 future residents of a community, let's let's design this together because that's not going to work either. So it's a loop. What what I think is that you get this perfect, you know, sweet spot in the middle of that, which says as long as you are actively and you've you've got to have empathy. The funny thing about all this is and again this is part of this realization we've come up with. People don't trust property developers. So see that. So <laughs> so you, you get this situation where we're we're walking in and we're saying to someone we're about to knock these buildings over and we're going to reproduce this community. People start to worry about traffic, absolutely, overcrowding, you know, population sitting in their backyard, all this sort of stuff. So when you start from that point of view, you have to say, well, how do we as a property developer win that trust? Oh, you, you guys start miles from behind, don't you? Absolutely. Well, that's that's the default until until such time as you start to talk about the development in the context of the community and about the connections that you're genuinely trying to achieve. And it takes time and you have to have a track record. You can't just say it. You've got to believe it. But that goes back to that authenticity. If you actually have an ability to listen and you have empathy around what those concerns genuinely are, then you build that into your design and you build that into your outcomes. Because as I said before, it's a it's a nuanced approach. You you can't take a cookie cutter approach in a suburban uh, development in the southeast of Melbourne and apply that to an inner city apartment building in Brisbane. You've got to be really nuanced in your approach and you've got to be really respectful of the existing community around it and the future community but I think the secret is just having that empathy and, and being able to listen. So if you were going to give some examples, which ones would you highlight, which has really been, in your, in your case, real test cases proving yep. exactly where you're going? We've, we've got a number of what I guess you'd call exemplar projects yep. that show the value of community focus groups is what we'd call them. Okay. So, so actually speaking to people at the beginning of and throughout a development. Yep. Um, and they range. So they range from a from a large, you know, internationally recognizable development like Central Park in Chippendale in Sydney, where you've got, you know, buildings that have been awarded these amazing international often and and, and domestic awards for best building, sustainability outcomes, community outcomes, innovation outcomes. But equally, we've got developments like Fairwater out at Blacktown in Sydney or Berwick Waters in Victoria or, or uh, Brookhaven up in Brisbane, where you're, you're creating almost like a an urban fringe type development where you are, are creating a community. You go to a, an urban growth boundary and start to develop a new environment, 
you're still talking to future residents. You're still talking to what are those things? What are those design elements? What are those real estate fundamentals that are actually going to help them live their life? So is it about streetscapes? Is it about building lobbies? Is it about sitting spaces? Is it about parks? You know, a lot of people, uh, dogs, for instance, walking dogs is one of these things that a lot of people might take for granted, but so many people at the same time of a morning or an afternoon will walk their dog. How do you make that a community outcome, right? How do you, how do you create a space and an interaction for for people that they go, oh, wow, I'm going to run into that same person. People know each other's dogs' names, those sort of things. It's different for every development, but we've got we've got lots of examples where it really makes a difference. Do we need a minister for loneliness in Australia? The UK thought they did. They appointed a minister for loneliness. Um, That's a true story the, then. Yeah, in their parliament. They they have seen this as one of these, these social outcomes that I guess if you look at it from a different lens as well. Um, and there's probably a whole question on housing affordability here as well. Yeah, and, which, I was gonna, which we can which lead we, into. Which right? we can get to. Yep. But if you, if you look at- In theory, at, it all sounds good. Yep. I've got, to afford, I've got to pay for it. But can you deliver it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so when, you look at, when you look at loneliness and you look at housing affordability and some of these larger issues, when you think about, okay, well, why would you appoint a minister for loneliness? Well, if you're starting to think about the downstream impacts of loneliness and without necessarily trying to take a holistic view on what we might do as a as a community to help these people, then suddenly you're looking at social services, you're looking at health, all of these other, you know, if you're the government, budgetary issues yes. um, that are going to come downstream. Yep. So what I think that's quite proactive is thinking, well, how do we how do we put some upstream fixes in place? How do we put the right people in the right places talking about the right things to make a difference. And you're not going to get it right. This is, this is hard. You're not going to get it right all the time for every single person. But I think addressing it, having the conversations and, and at least putting putting those platforms in place where people can can raise concerns and, and, and start to think about what are the best things to do, it's quite innovative. Now, we both, you and I both grew up in Sydney. Pretty tough for young people to grow up now to get their first apartment. It is. Anywhere near a CBD and, and hold down a job and work the hours of no, which is expected. It is. What's the answer here? Yeah. I wish I knew. I don't think it's one silver bullet, to be honest. And it is interesting to, to kind of take a long-term view on this too. It has actually always been hard to get into the housing market. You know, we've, we've seen some articles that have been dug out of the, the Daily Mirror back in 1940 saying, you know, can you believe it now? The house, how are kids ever going to afford a house? Yep. But it is trending in a, in a worse way. Um, so when you look at it in terms of income ratio or any of those things, it, it's getting harder. So there are a number of things that we have to look at. Um, the thing with Australian housing as well is it's not, it's a sort of an interesting asset class because it's not just about housing a population. It's an investment asset mm. for a lot of people. Yep. So suddenly- Life savings. It, exactly. So suddenly it is also an asset that has the same market forces, whether it's interest rates or market sentiment or cost of whatever it might be. And that drives valuations too. So, so for a long time, you've seen the decrease in interest rates over time naturally translate into an increase in house prices. But at the same time, you've still got this demand issue that, that in effect is out of kilter with supply. Yep. And any market commodity, you always have to look at both sides of the equation. I think in a lot of ways, we probably get it wrong by looking at the demand side drivers. So sometimes we might make it harder for an investor because it makes a loan harder to get or change the tone around some of that language. But equally too, we've, we've got to have a much broader conversation about supply and how do we 
I mean, if you look at some of the fundamental drivers of housing in Australia, and, and I'm talking about the future outlook, yep. if you take a view, the ABS is, I think, forecasting a reasonably conservative view on population growth. Mm-hmm. It, definitely something that we've seen in the past. They call it one to one and a half percent. That's going to mean we've got an extra, say, from 26 million today, yep. we'll have 36 million people in 30 years. Yep. So that's another 10 million people that are going to be in Australia at that time. So if you average that out and, and look at that in terms of you know infrastructure spend and, and amenity and then housing, yep. we've got to be building somewhere between 200 and 250,000 houses per annum. Houses or apartments? Both. Both. Dwellings. Okay. Right? So you're going to use the word dwellings now because that's all changing. Dwellings. Exactly. So, so the composition has to change, but we have to think- Does it or do we make other cities more attractive? That's a great question. So, so the the question around population growth, I think we need to we need to be strategic about. But I mm. think you know if we if we agree that population growth is important as a, as an economic driver, sure. then we have to think about where that population growth is best suited. Yeah. So, is it about the existing CBDs and the existing cities, or yeah. is there too much stress around those? You talk about infrastructure costs, you talk about food and water, and all of these things yeah. that sitting behind that. Um, what we have to really be smart about is well, why and how. Can we incentivize people to potentially move away from CBDs, even for a period of time? Is there something out there that that might be around attracting businesses to other locations outside of, of cities? Yeah. Is that tax advantages? Is it is it other incentives? That naturally then means employment. The issue with CBDs and the cities as they are is that's where the employment is. Correct. So people are going to naturally gravitate to those yeah. CBDs and that makes housing more expensive. Yeah. Um, but so, so part of it's this supply thing and saying, well, how do we get a diversity of housing? The, the thing with housing affordability and, and the overall market is you need a diversity because every, every day of the week, you've got new home buyers looking for a house. You've got upgraders who are either at different family cycles. You've got downsizers who are looking to get out of a bigger place and into a smaller place. And you've got investors. So all the time you're looking at these multiple assets across multiple drivers, and we have to we have to address well in a planning context how do we provide housing for the population in addition to um, you know the, the different priorities that people have in their lives. And what's your thoughts on the actual general planning capability and actual follow through? Because we change governments so regularly. Yeah, you know you look at the fabric of when we grew up. Again, we had houses. We're sitting here in the back of Surrey Hills now where you've got the old factories being moved out the front door. You've got apartments being built, almost similar to like Hong Kong. That's very, very different. They're definitely changing. Yeah. But is it changing for the better? Is it changing for the worse? You get on a bus, you've got to be standing for 20 minutes all the way into the city. That's not necessarily that great either. Yep. But you're thinking, where was the planning done? Uh, I, look at, I look at business, Sydney and Melbourne, still is the major capitals for business in Australia. Perth, WA for the mining, et cetera. Brisbane still needs more. Adelaide still needs more. Uh, we have very little in Tasmania. Where does this all reside? Yeah, I think that's a great question because the, this is- it's not getting better in that regard, I don't think. No, I don't think it is either. This is where I think you have this this inefficiency where you've got multiple levels of government worrying about their own little patch. Um, yep. and, and they're incentivized and, to do so as well. Absolutely. And, and to be honest, they've only got the remit to do it. So I'm, yeah. not, I'm not saying it as, a, as, a, as an absolute negative because mm. they've only got certain amount of levers they can pull as well. But if what you've described is is an ambition for the country, maybe there's this ambition we need to have as a federal government potentially to own housing, to own planning, to own supply as a long-term vision for the country. The issue, I think, with election cycles- Three, and with, three years. 
and it's layered, right? It's layered from federal through state through local government. Yes. So all of a sudden, you've got either incentive or disincentive to be turning supply on and off. You've got very short-term decision-making in what really, for a, for a country that's got I mean, a lot of countries around the world would kill to have those those future growth ambitions. Yes, that that are almost not a given for us, but are a real opportunity for us. Are so, we so are we plundering in, making some big mistakes? Do you think? Or in not? some ways, in some ways, we could be. I mean, we might we might get it right. We might stumble our way and get it right. We've got it right so far, broadly. But yeah. as you can see, it's straining a bit. Yep. So I'd love to think that there's there's a higher order discussion around, okay, let's take a really strong 20 to 30 to 40 year view mm. around population. Where is it going to go? How are we investing in infrastructure now and over those next 30 to 40 years to develop those opportunities? And how are you comfortably absorbing that population growth to make it a, a great lifestyle opportunity for people? Because that's the thing that you don't want to lose here in Australia. It's the greatest place to live by far. Yep. But those things that are starting to put a strain on, whether it's commuting or or population that are sort of just starting to burst at the seams in certain suburbs or whatever it might be, we've, we've got to be better than that. Okay. I think let me flip that then. Based on your experience, if we don't have those conversations or seriously start getting some decisions about this, where do you see us in the next 30 or 40 years? Is it going to be high rises everywhere? It could be. It could be, depending on the city. So yeah. if you look at something like like Sydney, it's a very different urban fabric than what, say, Melbourne or Brisbane is. Yep. I mean, Melbourne can keep growing. North Melbourne will hit the bottom of Sydney before Sydney expands over the National Park, right? And it's argued Melbourne's going to have a greater population than Sydney what, in the next, less than the next decade, Correct, it? because yeah. it can absorb it. It's yeah, very right. clear, actually. And they, and they can do it. Now, again, there's, there's an issue with being 40 k's out from the CBD, too, if there's not jobs and there's not amenity and there's not infrastructure that supports that. So I think Melbourne still has its challenges in terms of how it absorbs that population. Yeah. But if you think of Sydney, you're, you're actually you're hemmed in. You've got mountains, right. ocean, water, and national park. Yep. So so in a lot of ways, that pressure becomes a bit like Hong Kong. Yes. Um, both of us have worked up there. Both of us know that you can't just continue to urban sprawl in Hong no. Kong. Everything starts to become vertical. And you can do that well if you really think about it, but you still have to be thinking in, in broader macro planning terms. So how do suburbs transform, not just how does a block of land transform? Because that, that's the issue around... That, that shorter term vision is you say, well, that, that one's been planning approved, go and do that development. But there is a lot of value. And look, planning instruments are doing this to some degree, but but I think there's a there's a higher order conversation that needs to be had in conjunction with that debate around population and infrastructure spend and, and how potentially there's an entity that might own that that sits outside of that political short-termism. You travel the world. What communities and projects have you seen in different parts of the world which impress you? There's lots. A lot of the US developments are great. We spend a lot of time over there just doing some different tours and, and, and product tours, et cetera. Yep. Um, a lot of the European countries are great with planning and developing communities that are adaptable, that are mixed use, um, but that really are, are focused on not just the population today, but about really the sustainability. I think that this is- Yeah, so I was going to ask you about that. Yeah. This is, this is the next nuance, right? So- Sustainability has obviously been a, a buzzword for some time, but I think there's more and more pressure now on what constitutes good development and what constitutes good planning through the lens of sustainability. And it's it's much broader now. I think maybe 10 or 15 years ago, when you spoke about sustainability, you spoke about green initiatives, environmental initiatives, which are still very important. So, you know, water and waste and energy 
all those things are still very important. And, yep. and, and there's been a huge amount of advancements in that space. We're doing a lot of stuff internally. We own our own utilities business now. We, we actually produce or provide energy for our, our residents and well, our and customers. Trade it, trade it back on the grid. Yeah. So we, yeah, and we have, we have obviously embedded networks and these sorts of things. So, so there's been a huge advancement in that space. But where sustainability as a broader concept has moved to mm-hmm. is now much more around, like we were saying before, personal health and well-being, community yep. health and well-being, resilience, you know, all of these different things that are, that are now part of people's ideas and, and expectations. There was a time where you could offer sustainability to a customer and they'd say, it sounds good, but I'm not prepared to pay for it. All of a sudden, it's going to be an expectation for people that, well, I'm assuming now that you're building five-star, green-star, or, or you're building things that are energy-efficient or water-efficient, et cetera. The next layer, which comes down to your space, Greg, is so the property industry and the built the built industry is actually one of the largest emitters, you know, the biggest carbon uh, emitters. Yes. How do we as an industry, and then us as a business, for instance, keep attracting people to come and work for us if we aren't really focused on tangible outcomes and actually making meaningful uh, progress in the space of sustainability. I think I think there's a there's a gap here now that if you're not doing it, not only are your customers going to disappear, absolutely, but you'll actually have trouble getting a workforce. Absolutely, we're already seeing that, aren't we? Particularly the younger generation. Yeah, they're very passionate about this, and 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 so they should be. Mm. My era in particular, we've spanned both. You know, I've come out at the start of my career. It wasn't a big thing. Now it's it's huge and it forms such a central part of everything we're doing in terms of property development and property management. So it's not surprising that if you've got a, a really smart kid coming out of university now, and they might have a passion on property, but they're also going to have an equally passion about the future of the globe and what that business that I'm going to work for, I'm going to devote a lot of my energy and time and attention to this business. I want to make sure they're taking tangible uh, actions in having an impact on climate. Just on those young ones coming through today. Have they got the patience? That's a good question. You probably see more of them than we do. Yeah. Oh, look, I think they do. I think they just need the alignment. I think that's a much that's that's the biggest difference. There's no doubt that the generation that I was part of coming into an organization, it was almost as if we were thankful that they were giving us a job. And and you kind of sat there and smiled and you know, it, it felt a lot more one way. Whereas now we've got plenty of young people interviewing us about our credentials for them to take on a role, which I think in some ways is actually really good because it just actually challenges yourself to have a think about it yeah. um, and say, well, what is your proposition, right? It's one thing to to have a vision and, and have a strategy. That's great. But as I said before, it's just as important to have a brand that's aligned with that because people externally to the business don't know what it's like other than what you represent out in the market. But the third part of the triangle is the culture. So, So if you can't deliver on a promise that for some people, they're going to be able to walk in, or for all people, they're going to be able to walk in and say, not only is this business doing something that's meaningful, but I am also part of that, then you've probably got a challenge. Just on the whole culture and you're communicating the culture, how do you do that as a CEO? It's not the plaque on the wall, surely. No, no, it's not. It's uh, And this is, this is a, we we spend so much time on it. We spend a huge amount of time on it and we have done for over 10 years now. And is it paying the dividends to spend the time on it? Definitely. Definitely. And, and the way it breaks down, because it's a good question. Culture doesn't exist just by the CEO standing up or Getting, sending an email. Making a big speech at Christmas time, etc. Yep. And telling everyone, hey, hey, we've got a great culture. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> That's right. The, the only way it <laughs> sits- feel it? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> the only way it sits is if, if it comes from the bottom up. They need to tell you what the culture's like. Right, right. Okay. And then you as a leader actually have the power to do something about it. So 
We survey our staff every two years, very, very detailed survey. We use sort of an ACI, you know, circumplex yep. that talks about styles because what we're really interested in, and, and then we break it down. So we do get a, a consolidated view and this will say, this is Fraser's Property Australia's culture, right? In one circumplex. But then you break it out. You say, what's it like if you're in Melbourne? What's it like in your if you're in Melbourne in the project development team? You know, what, what's it like in finance? What's it like in in the legal team? What's it like to work for for our digital and technology team or or our brand team? So the ability to, to look at it at that level is that it goes to the essence of culture. What is every single person's experience of working at Fraser's property? Not how I experience it, not how I talk about it, or not how our leaders walk out and say, oh, we've got this great culture, but how does everyone else experience it? So not only surveying it, but then actually putting your money where your mouth is and and then having ongoing detailed conversations around culture and also meaningful action plans that say, this is what the data tells us. It's telling us that we've got, we're actually not as good as we could be in X. That could be communication of you know, information or it could be, it could be how, to, how are we actually celebrating success or whatever it is that, that are the elements of culture. If we're not good at those things in certain pockets, what are we going to do about it? How do we fix it? You happy with the performance of the business now? Really happy. Really happy. We've got a, we've got a great, and, and look, real estate's cyclical. Mm. So the trick with real estate is saying, how do you, how do you take a cyclical market yeah. um, and translate it into what is effectively consistent economic and project-based returns. I think that's an advantage for us. We're, we're not listed solely on the Australian Stock Exchange, yeah. and that allows us in some ways to be really focused on, on those project and financial outcomes and less about an annual cycle of earnings. So we will make decisions from time to time that says, you know what, that is going to be a one or two month delay on that sort of thing. And, that, and we know that's going to be a different to our an, annual result, but that's the better outcome for either customers or for the long-term value of that project. So we've got a great suite of projects. I, I couldn't be happier with the culture, especially how it's come through a pretty difficult period and yep. continues to go through a pretty difficult period. Yep. An awesome leadership team. So yeah, everything says that uh, it's it's going to be a great future and I love my job. I'm just interested, uh, Anthony, in when companies aspire to excel like you do, you've got a great culture and you test it, as you say. When do you break with fit? Because on our side of the fence as search consultants, we get the brief, very detailed brief. We push back, we challenge, we meet your colleagues. Yep. We, we come back to you and challenge you even on your brief. And then often the comment is, look, they've got to be the right fit. Do they? Because that's, if you surround yourself by the same people with the same fit, aren't you ultimately still going to get the same results? Yeah. It's a really good question. Is there enough challenging about that? I just sort of wonder sometimes. I mean, it's pushed out there, fit, fit, fit. Yep. Okay. Well, when do you break with that fit if you want to get different perspectives and some different results? Totally. It's an awesome question. Fits quite an intangible yes. element, isn't it? Yep, you know, so sure so often it's like you're giving me that big speech about the culture, can't you feel it, right? Correct, correct. <laughs> so you say, well, who, who's the judge of fit? That's the other thing. So is it a, is it a personal judgment that you think I just don't, I didn't really click with that person? We know both of us know a lot of high performance teams have people that are very different, correct? That would never socialise with each other, or or are a very almost polar opposites in terms of their views on life, and yet can function very well in a high performance team. So you're managing a team, but you're managing actually a bunch of individuals. Yeah, correct. So so it's this, I think it's a mix. I really do think it's a mix. I think the idea of fits important. It wouldn't 
stop me bringing someone on board. But I think I would use fit more in my own mind as how they're performing relative to the rest of the business in terms of their interactions and are they bad for culture, right? Because my view is you can have the highest performer and and the smartest person in real estate, but if they're actually decretive to culture and, and everyone knows what that means. Yes. And again, that's a bit of an intangible, but it just might be the way they, they talk to people, the way they expect certain things to get done. It, it, that, and that might be out of kilter. That might be a non-fit situation. They're the things you've got to address. How do you stay ahead of your competition? We, we don't necessarily spend too much time analyzing what other people are doing. Is I, that right? I, yeah. I often think- Overrated? Uh, it, sometimes. Yeah. So focus on your own? On both sides. So both on a personal level and yep. in a business level. Now, don't get me wrong. It's really important to understand your competitive landscape. Yep. And often it's an admiration thing for us because you're seeing some really good property development companies out there doing some really good things. And the industry itself is is quite collegiate, but sometimes I think you can overdo it too. So really we've, we've sort of, what I think is, is pioneered in this space a little bit around that future of connection and how important property is for social cohesion and, and social connection and the feeling of of belonging. Um, that's not something that I, I have seen in competitors necessarily. We haven't imitated that or done that differently. That's sort of been our own race a little bit and and that, that's okay. But it, but I guess, again, if we, if we had been really fixated just on what everyone else is doing all the time, you probably get stuck in the mud a little bit. Time to think. When do you take it? I always create space in my diary. Like I block time in my diary. And sometimes thinking is not necessarily big strategic not bubbles a, or big blue sky big innovation <laughs> stuff sometimes it's just going yeah what you know how will i speak to that person about an opportunity or how will i do it so says that's all thinking you yes. know and it's funny how that leads to different things yes the other thing for me is is running so i still run or go to the gym you know pretty much most days and running for me has has it's happened too many times for it to be a coincidence that i have this clarity of thought while I'm running. And, and I and I guess it's potentially meditation yep. by another name. Yes. I know a lot of other people do that. Yep. So much so that I've actually looked at it, like the neuroscience behind it. There's a lot of neuroscience that backs it up, that, yep. that's some, something about the way your, your body works when it's actually exercising at, at a high intensity and how that how that frees up your your clarity of thought. So that's a really good discipline. You know, I just, I find, and I don't do it, I, I don't preach it, I don't sort of, you know, demand it of others. I just, it's just something I really enjoy doing and it just always creates space for me to just actually think. Anthony, what do you need to become a leader? I love your podcasts that that actually address this across the spectrum. And I guess over time between that and different leadership books, I mean, it's, it's one of the most spoken about things. I actually think in my own mind, it, it can be slightly different for the context. Mm. So you speak to leaders that have variously worked in the, in the, fields of war yeah. or politics or business or sport. Yep. I think it's it's slightly different, but there are some absolute consistencies. The, the first would be passion. So not just passion in yourself, that having your own passion, but also the ability to inspire passion in others. You need to be able to make decisions. So we spoke about that before. That's not easy. It's not easy. That's why I think it's, it's you know, this differentiator. People who don't make decisions. Absolutely. So you need to be able to make decisions and that, and that's conviction in yourself and having the right people around you to help you make them. You definitely need perspective, as I said before, and, 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 and resilience probably as a, as a flip side of that. What does uh, resilience mean to you then? 
it's just the ability to, to ride through things. You know, I, I love that saying, I mean, I think various philosophers have claimed it over time, but this too will pass, yep. right? The idea that can you cast forward and look back at yourself in two weeks' time or two months' time and go, is this really important? So that that's resilience to me. It's just having that perspective, being able to to take, and that's that's for good and bad. You know, mm. it's not just about failure. It's not just about, you know, being down and saying, oh, don't worry, it'll get better. It's also about success. You know, don't overinflate success, right? Because again, cast yourself forward two weeks, is that always going to be the case? You definitely need energy and talent. You know, it's just one of those things. People feed off energy. And I think it's just something people look at, even if it's body language, it's it's subtle, but people feed off that. And the last would just be around empathy. We, we spoke about it before and just being able to listen, put yourself in other people's shoes. Have you had a coach? I have. I have. So what have you, yeah, so what have you done to address? And obviously you're aspiring one day to be, well, you must have set yourself a few goals, even though, as you say, you fell forward a lot of times or whatever it is, but no, you're on a path. What's been transformational for you? Yeah. And, and when I speak about sort of stumbling into roles, I think you, you're still always, always prepared. You're always you thinking, you know, yeah. and you're always, you've always got that awareness of the world and yeah. those sorts of things. Yeah. I guess the stumble part is that I just haven't ever had my elbows out and been political about lobbying for a job or strategically positioning myself for the next opportunity. But a coach is awesome, right? Because you're able to to sometimes bounce things off a coach that is probably harder to bounce off a colleague or, or a direct report or something like that. Um, and it can be a bit more philosophical like this. You can actually say, you know, and I've had I've had coaches maybe look at a video that I've done where I've blasted it out to all staff and and staff tell you, oh, that was a great video. Thanks for the update. <laughs> and my coach has said, no, that's horrible. You, you did this, you, your body language was just all off. I just, I don't think it was authentic the way you presented it. It looked yeah. like you might've even been reading what you were saying. You know, those sorts of things are really, really great, authentic feedback to get from people like cages. Yeah. Yeah. Communication. So critical. Super important. Do you, work, it, do you work on that a lot? All the time. And it's, and it's layering. So you, you think from what you got in your own toolkit, how much have you had to build? Quite a lot. I think with, with people that are reasonably comfortable with leadership, communication probably also comes reasonably naturally to them. Yep. The issue is, is that the bigger the role that you're doing and the more people that kind of sit underneath that role, mm -hmm. the harder it is to get that message exactly nuanced in the right way to everybody. People read words differently. People hear words differently. So, so the biggest thing for me with communication is being able to, to layer it, to, to be able to reinforce the messages by people who are naturally more affiliated with their own boss or their own team, yeah. um, that that's really important. And having that firstly clarity in what you're communicating and then the consistency in that message all the way down through the organization is, is critical. Okay. We haven't come through SARS recently, but we came for another pandemic, COVID. This time you weren't watching the boss, you were the boss. How did you communicate? Frequently is the first answer. But you're not walking the floor as much? Not as much. So we introduced much more regular video updates that we would we would send out. We've got the workplace situated, like so that social media kind of network through the, the like the professional network through the organization. So talking through that, picking up the phone a lot more, having individual conversations and encouraging all of the other managers and the, and the leaders in the business to do the same thing. And then it was actually listening as well, giving people the opportunity to to talk back. So that, that's the other thing, right? So communication, I think sometimes people tick the box and say, I've told people that, I've told them that, that's very clear. But actually what they're not doing is opening up the other half of communication, which is coming back up the chain. Uh, so we were really careful about that. And whether that was through some surveys we were selling to staff, whether it was through open forums where we just said to people, 
you know, ask us anything. In fact, I was in Brisbane only a couple of days ago and we had a situation, I had a forum where we just had everyone in the business unit yep. and we had five or six leaders sitting at the front and just saying, we're not going to present a single slide. We're not going to talk about anything other than what you want to bring up and talk to us about. So there's those sort of elements that say we are authentically trying to communicate both ways. Okay. Now the big $64,000 question out there for every chief exec at the moment, what's the working week going to look like? Everyone's sort of working that one through. Yeah. Where are you at? This is a a philosophical question more mm. than it's a, a strategic question. I think it's going to be different for everyone is my view. And I think what companies need to do is create a framework so that their teams and the individuals in those teams have enough flexibility to get what they need out of their working week balance, but have enough autonomy to, to work where they want to work. So the office is nowhere near dead. The central place of working is critical for people. It's about collaboration. It's about opportunities. I often lament the idea during COVID that people at the end of a meeting, when you finish up on Teams and everyone hangs up at the same time, you don't have the opportunity to go and say, I'll have a crack at that. Can, yeah. I, can I put my hand up and do that? That's how all of us got ahead. It was, it was about having that sidebar conversation or showing that energy and that attitude of, oh, can I can I get involved in that? That has to continue. So to some degree, and I think it's at least half the week, you need to be sort of thinking about those authentic connections, personal connections. We spoke about how important it is in, in communities we're building. Yeah. It's the same with culture. It's more Absolutely. important with culture. Yep. But the genie's out of the bottle. We're not going back to 50-hour working weeks, all in the office, all commuting at the same time, and all just focusing on this sort of lemming-type attitude to CBDs and whatever. It's going to change a little bit like that. Mm -hmm. But that that's just about a balance that people will find themselves. Right. Hardcore. Productivity the same level as it was 12 months ago? In some ways, productivity is, yes. Really? In other ways, we'll only know the difference in a couple of years, right? Because I think oh, the productivity okay. we've had yep. is probably built off established relationships. So we've been able to take money out of the bank. Yep. I don't think that would be the same as if, if, if in five years' time, if nothing changes, if we don't get back into the offices and those places of business and work with each other and foster those relationships and build new connections, yep. that productivity will definitely decrease over time. Yeah. And I, I sort of wonder what your thoughts are, Anthony, when you have a team which put forth ideas, right? That's productivity. We're not just building widgets, as you say. That's right? right. And do you miss out on that or can you still capture it depending on what you're talking about on the working relationship? That's that's the hard part. That's the hard it? part. And some teams absolutely can. Yeah. And this is the other thing about the younger, the younger generation. Yep. They're a bit more astute around collaboration tools and dynamics and interactions online. And I think in some ways it does democratize a little bit that the hierarchy in an organization, if you're on a Teams meeting, but- there are those other elements that are a bit intangible, yep. which is people watching leaders, watching how they behave, just just drawing down experience from people. You can sometimes you can you can feel experience in a room, and you can sort of gravitate to people, and then you can walk outside and ask them a question. Oh, so when when you said that, did you actually mean you know is this what's really important? So they're they're those sidebar relationship building type conversations that I believe you can only have in person. You exhausted. Now I've got more energy than ever. What about your team? Team's tired. The team is tired. It's been an interesting couple of years because even though there's been less travel, less commuting, seemingly more time at home, I think the blurring of, of that work-life balance has become taxing for people. 
people naturally gravitating, walking past the computer on the way up to bed at 10 o'clock at night, quickly going on a few more emails. Oh, look, suddenly I'm stuck for another hour. Yeah. I'll get up early tomorrow because I don't have to get on the bus. I'm going to quickly go down to my desk. So people are tired. There's no doubt about it. What what we need to do as leaders is is find those release valves. How do you how do you give people the space and the time and the confidence to be able to go? Okay, I need some balance here, and that that I think is about that's just as much about flexibility as as the working week. Anthony, if you were to look back at that young man going to those corridors at PwC all those years ago, what advice would you give him now? Probably just that it's it'll all work out well. The way that you are going about things will be fine. I guess sometimes you you worry. You know, I guess every young person worries to some degree and probably has a little bit of anxiety about, you know, is that the right thing to do and is that the right job to take and all those sorts of things. So it's nice to sit here now and look back and think, you know, all of that stuff that you maybe didn't need that worry. Um, and I think the other thing too is just enjoy the ride. We spoke to a, a great leader in our business last year who, and, and that was one of the questions we asked. And he's been a very successful CEO in very different businesses in different countries. And one of the things he was asked in the same thing, he said, uh, enjoy the ride. Sometimes you just get so busy looking at that next opportunity, you don't get a chance to just sit still for a minute and actually really enjoy what you're doing at that time. So that's probably the other part. On that, Anthony, I've enjoyed the ride today. Thank you very much for making the time. Thanks very much for having me. It's been great to chat, Greg. You've been listening to No Limitations. 